Welcome to the Breath Magazine podcast. Learn more about Breath Magazine and sign up for our newsletter to receive the latest news and updates at our website, breathmagazine.com. And now for today's episode. If you have your Bibles, turn over to Romans 1. And while you're turning there, let me share two quotes with you that I ran across this week. The first one is from Fleming Rutledge. And if you don't know who she is, you can look her up on Wikipedia or Amazon. She's written some books. She's, she writes this, In many of our mainline congregations today, sermons are largely based on passages from the Gospels, less frequently from the Old Testament, and rarely from Paul's epistles. Well, I read that this week, and I went back to my... Um, to-do sermon list, my whiteboard, where I have all the list of sermons that I plan on doing, and I erase some of them because I thought to myself, if people are not hearing preaching from Paul's epistles, then I need to stand up and do that. Because it's from Paul's epistles that we get the revelation of the mystery of Christ, and it strengthens us and strengthens our walk of salvation. So if nobody else is going to preach on it, then I am. The second quote is more of a rant, and it's a rant about current day preaching. Listen to this. It's from Dan. He says, And speaking of Jesus, can I hear the word of God read out loud? A big chunk of it? In context, please. And not a set of cherry-picked verses to make a point. And can the sermon be about Jesus and not about how I can try harder to be a good Christian? I don't need five points and an application or three. I need Jesus. Well, I hear you, Dan. And so, you know, I'm going to put his quotation up on the wall. And I'm going to try to live by that. Because, you know, Paul writes, and this will be another sermon, but he writes that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And preachers like to, well, the conventional wisdom is you give a few points and then you have some kind of true life application. You don't see that too much with Paul. You don't see that too much with the prophets. You see them preaching the word of God and then people go out and they incorporate it into their lives by osmosis, kind of, by the engrafted word, as James puts it. So that's what I'm going to aim to do. One last thing. This isn't a quote, but it's something that I've thought about. Many sermons are set up kind of like sitcoms. You have a short introduction. You've got about 25 minutes or so of middle, and then you have a short application period where people are supposed to go put it in practice. In my neck of the body of Christ, a lot of times the preachers say, you know, say after me, and there's some kind of confession. Well, I'm going to approach things a little bit more, well, a little bit differently. Psalms 1 says that we are like trees planted by the rivers of water and bring forth fruit in season. And you know, the real thought behind that is you're washed by the water of the word constantly. And it's the word that grows you up. So I don't know that I'm going to have any little things to do at the end of my sermons. In fact, I might have to cut them short because of time. But 
The bulk of the sermon is meant to grow you up and to edify you. So you know the mystery of Christ a whole lot better than you did coming in. And so going out, you can do the works of the Lord, but you can find out what those works are between you and the Lord yourself. So with that said, let's go ahead and dig into our text. Now, I had picked out or marked out verses 1 through 6, but I don't know that we're going to get all the way through them because we've got a lot of ground to cover. As Dan said, he wants to hear scripture and a big chunk of it. Well, he's going to get it. And um, so that's the way we're going to preach it. So verses 1 through 6, as you know, I preach from the NRSV, but I don't think that the NRSV translation uh, really did justice to these six verses, so I came up with my own translation. Let me read that to you, and then we're going to go back and we're going to break it down. Here we go. Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, a called apostle, Set apart unto the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and holy writings about his son, having come from the seed of David according to the flesh, having been marked out son of God in power according to a spirit of holiness by a resurrection of dead ones. Jesus Christ our Lord through whom we have received grace and apostleship unto the obedience of faith among all nations on behalf of his name, among whom also are y'all, called ones of Jesus Christ. Had to put y'all in there because I'm Texan. Now, let's start out by saying this. This letter is an introductory letter Paul had not founded or visited the Christians in Rome or the church in Rome. Listen to verses 9 through 10. He writes this, For God whom I serve with my spirit by announcing the gospel of his Son is my witness that without ceasing I remember you always in my prayers, asking that by God's will I may somehow at last succeed in coming to you. So he hasn't been there yet. And in fact, let me read to you the end of Romans. This is Romans 15, 20 to 24. Because it gives you Paul's mindset. He says in 15, 20, Thus I make it my ambition to proclaim the good news, not where Christ has already been named, so that I do not build on someone else's foundation. As it is written, those who have never been told of him shall see, and those who have never heard of him shall understand. This is the reason that I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, with no further place for me in these regions, I desire, as I have for many years, to come to you when I go to Spain. For I do hope to see you on my journey and to be sent on by you once I have enjoyed your company for a little while. So you see what Paul says here is that he hasn't been to Rome because the gospel had already come to Rome. 
He was interested in spreading the gospel in places where it hadn't been yet. But now that he's been to all these different regions, he can make his way to Rome. And that's, that's the setting of the letter. Now, one other thing about the letter is he's going to be addressing both Gentile Christians or non-Jewish Christians and Jewish Christians, and we're going to get into that. So anyway, let's start with verse 1. Paul writes, Paul, a, a slave of Christ Jesus, a called apostle, set apart unto the gospel of God. Now, these people haven't seen Paul before, so let's introduce Paul a minute. Who is this guy? Who is Paul the Apostle? Well, we get somewhat of a resume of him in Philippians 3. Let me read this to you. He writes, If anyone has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, and as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Now, what Paul is saying there is before his conversion on the road to Damascus, he had a resume of resumes. He was circumcised the eighth day, a member of Israel, a tribe, a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, a Pharisee. In Acts, he says that he belonged to the strictest sect of our religion and lived as a Pharisee. So he was a Jew of Jews, a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee of Pharisees. He had an Ivy League resume. And in fact, um, when he talks about he was a persecutor of the church, he says, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, Part of the background of that is that when Paul was a Jew, when he was a Pharisee, and he caught wind of Jewish believers calling Jesus the Messiah, well, they were going outside the law. They weren't keeping the law. And one of the things that he was, one of the reasons why he was persecuting the church was in effect to cleanse Israel of sin so Israel could receive her Messiah. And he says that as the zeal, he didn't have, um, he was beyond everybody. And as to righteousness under the law, he was blameless. So that is, uh, back then he was known as Saul. His, uh, his Greek name was Paul. But that's his resume. That's where he comes from. And in Acts... Acts 22, we find out that he not only was a Pharisee, but he was also a Roman citizen. Catch this. Acts 22, 27. The tribune came and asked Paul, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. And the tribune answered, it costs me a large sum of money to get my citizenship. 
And Paul said back to him, but I was born a citizen. So when you take a look at Paul prior to his conversion, he had it made. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He had status. He had prestige. He probably had wealth. He had his religion. He was part of the people of God. He could have gone on in that and died in his own bed peacefully. Like a lot of people do today, huh? You know, I mean, a lot of people associate that kind of prestige, that kind of uh, richness, that kind of background as, you know, well, I'm blessed of the Lord. And uh, they, they seek to have that and die in their own bed. But Paul didn't do that. Notice the very next phrase that he puts in this letter. He calls himself a slave of Christ Jesus. Now, I want you to think about that a minute. A slave of Christ Jesus. How many of us can self-identify like that? How many of us have ever, ever in our lives introduced ourselves to people who have never met us and we call ourselves slaves of Christ Jesus. You know, in Romans 16.22, we see that Paul is dictating this letter because 16.22 says, I, Tertius, the writer of this letter, greet you in the Lord. So imagine this. Imagine the setting. Paul says to Tertius, um, I need to dictate a letter. Take it down for me. And so he gets ready to write, and Paul says, okay, Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus. I mean, imagine that. Paul's not saying this alone. He's saying this to somebody who's taking down his words. And the point I'm trying to make is, Paul was so confident that he had emptied himself so much of his self, or himself, should say himself, um, that he could call himself a slave. In other letters, he calls himself a bondservant or a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Remember in Philippians? In Philippians, we have what some people call the hymn, where it says that Christ emptied himself. Let me turn there a second. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness. Now, that's talking about Christ. That Christ emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness. But notice what Paul does. He takes that within himself and he says, oh, well, Christ emptied himself, but I have emptied myself and I am now a slave of Christ Jesus. We should be able to say the very same thing. 
we should be able to carry that same testimony to say, I'm a slave of Christ. Without any smirks, without any laughter, without any joking around, I said, no, this is my life. Christ Jesus is my life. Paul didn't have any problem with that. Now, he says, a slave of Christ Jesus, a called apostle. And I'm going to spend a little bit of time on this because a lot of people are confused by it. Paul calls himself an apostle. In the Greek, apostle means sent one. But in the New Testament, it means a lot more than that. It's not just one sent. There is spiritual equipment that accompanies this gifting. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says about distributions of the Holy Ghost. In Hebrews 2.3, he writes this, How can we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? It was declared at first through the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard him. Now notice verse 4. While God added his testimony by signs and wonders and various miracles and by distributions of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Well, what is the writer of Hebrews talking about? Distributions of the Holy Ghost. It's usually, um, that verse is usually translated gifts of the Holy Spirit, but you go back in the Greek and you see it's actually distributions. It's not the word for gifts. It's distributions. Well, when we go to Ephesians, we see that Jesus has given gifts to the church. Let me read Ephesians 4, 7. But, ye, but each of us was given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now listen to this. Therefore, it is said, when he ascended on high, he made captivity itself a captive. He gave gifts to his people. Then you ask, well, what gifts are those? And Paul writes and he says in verse 11, the gifts he gave were that some would be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, and teachers. These are the spiritual distributions that the writer of Hebrews is talking about. They are sovereignly given by the Lord. They're not earned by achievement. They're not earned by merit. And they're not, they're not given by desire. You know, it's not like being a, a Christian horseshack and welcome back Cotter and saying, oh, I want the gift, I want the gifts, and then God finally gives it. No, he gives how he wants to distribute those gifts. The purpose of them, Paul writes further on, he says the purpose of these gifts, these distributions are to equip the saints for the work of the ministry for the building up of the body of Christ until all of us come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to maturity, to the measure of the full stature of Christ. So what's that mean? Well, that means that when Jesus ascended on high, he 
he gave the church these gifts, these spiritual distributions, and the distributions, these giftings, are upon men and women, and the purpose of them is to grow the church up, to build up the body of Christ. And when you go back to Paul's letter, you see that's what the purpose of his letter is. He says he's an apostle, and then what's the rest of the letter? It's building up the body of Christ by disseminating disseminating the mystery of Christ by explaining what the gospel is. And that's how the saints are built up. So these gifts are given for the church's edification. Now, there are many, many preachers today who teach that the gifts have ceased. They said there are no apostles, there are no prophets anymore. You know, and they say that, they say that the apostles and the prophets especially were given during the beginning of the church age to, to build up the church at the time and so the word can be written down and now we have the written word and we don't have need for the gifts. Well, Paul doesn't write that in Ephesians. In fact, Paul doesn't write that anywhere. He says that Jesus gave gifts to the church or to his people. And the implication is that he's going to continue to give these gifts, that you're still going to have apostles and prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers until the end of the church age. And why is that? Because the church needs to be edified. The church needs to be built up. So we have apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, today. Now, here's the interesting thing about some of these gifts, or about the gifts in general. One thing is that a person who has one of these, say, five giftings isn't necessarily a great speaker. You know, in the church today, it's all about media, and it's all about packaging, and it's all about, you know, um, lights and graphic art and everything else. Well, that might be well and good to some extent, but that doesn't indicate giftings, and it doesn't substitute for giftings. And the gifted person might not come all that well packaged. Listen to what Paul has to say about himself. Now, he's an apostle. In 1 Corinthians 2, he says, When I came to you, this is to the Christians in Corinth, Brothers, I didn't come proclaiming the mystery of God to you in lofty words or wisdom. He wasn't all that great of a speaker. In fact, in 2 Corinthians, he says this, I may be untrained in speech, but not in knowledge. Why does he say that? Because he's not a very good speaker. He's not all that well, he's not all that slick. And in fact, in 2 Corinthians 10.10, we read this. For they say, meaning Christians about Paul, for they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. Now, isn't that an interesting thing? That God calls Paul to be an apostle, 
and Paul is weak in presence and his speech is contemptible. Kind of reminds you of somebody, doesn't it? Should remind you of Moses. Remember when God called Moses to deliver the people of Israel? Moses started to argue with him. Listen to Exodus 4.10. But Moses said to the Lord, O oh my Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor even now that you have spoken to your servant, but I'm slow of speech and slow of tongue. Now imagine, you know, your favorite preachers and teachers today, the, the TV personalities, all sitting judging whether or not God made a good choice in Moses in calling Moses to Israel, they'd all give him a thumbs down. They'd all say, you know, Lord, we don't know what you're doing. We don't know what this guy says. You know, he's slow of speech, slow of tongue. He's not a good speaker. I think you need to find somebody who can speak better on your behalf. Who's more slick? Who can proclaim the gospel a whole lot better? But you see that God chooses who he chooses and I'm sure that he chooses guys like this, whether it's Paul or Moses, because he wants to show his strength in human weakness. You know, Paul says, I glory in weakness. Why? Because when I'm weak, he is strong. But I don't know, that might be lost on the church today. But what I want to point out is that there are men and women with these giftings who aren't the pre-packaged variety. You go back to uh, the prophet Samuel anointing David as king. If you remember the story, Samuel goes to Jesse and says, well, you know, I, I need to see all your sons because Samuel said you're going to anoint one of Jesse's sons to be king. And the very first one, man, he looks like, he, he looks like he's got Paul's resume. I mean, he is an A-lister. And Saul says to himself, well, it's got to be this guy, and it's not. And it's not the next one, and it's not the next one, and it's not the next one. Samuel goes all the way down, and then he says, well, do you have any other sons? I mean, he went through all the sons right there, and Jesse says, well, I've got one out in the field. He said, well, bring him in. He's the runt, and God chose the runt as king. Well, it's the same with the New Testament gifts. You see that with Paul? You see that he wasn't a very good speaker at all. And in fact, he not only was not a good speaker, he didn't even preach the gospel full time. You know, this day and age, you know, that's a criteria of preaching. That's a criteria of being a good minister as if you're in the ministry full time. But you know, the, the Apostle Paul wouldn't have made it. He wouldn't have made it in a whole lot of ministerial associations because he didn't, he didn't preach full-time. Listen. Listen to Acts 18.1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they worked together. By trade, they were tent makers. And you see through Paul's other letters that a lot of times he would not take money 
from the people he was preaching to. He said, no, I'm going to work. I'm not going to take money from you. So isn't that interesting? He is called to take the gospel to the Gentiles. He's not a very good speaker, and he's not even preaching full time. He has to work for a living. Now, let me bring out one other thing about uh, apostleship, because it goes along with these other gifts. I said that they are spiritual distributions. Well, Paul confirms that. Listen to Romans 15, 18 and 19. He says, and this is the very same letter that we're going through. He says, for, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to win obedience from the Gentiles by word and deed. Now, verse 19, get a hold of this. By the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and as far as Elycrium, I have fully proclaimed the good news of Christ. You see, he preached and God added his testimony with signs and wonders. We see that in his letter to the Corinthians. Listen to this, 2 Corinthians 12, 12. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost endurance, signs and wonders and mighty works. So these distributions, these gifts that we're talking about, they come with spiritual equipment. They come with manifestations of the Spirit. Let me give you one more, just so you get the flavor of it. In 1 Thessalonians 1.4, Paul writes this, For we know, brothers, beloved by God, that He has chosen you, because our message of the gospel came to you not in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. With full conviction. In 1 Corinthians, he says, My speech and my proclamation were not with plausible words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit and of power. So you see, one can't um, decide that he's going to be an apostle. One can't decide he's going to be a prophet or actually a pastor, teacher, and evangelist. The example of being an evangelist that we have is found in Acts, and it's Philip. And you know the testimony of Philip is that he went down to Samaria and he preached Christ. And when he preached Christ, you see what happened. People were healed. That was part of that spiritual distribution that he had on him. He had gifts of healings that Charismata added as testimony to his preaching of the gospel. So the point I'm making here is that Paul's setting out to the Christians in Rome. He's not saying, I'm any fly-by-night guy. No, I have been chosen as an apostle by the Lord. And that gives him authority in the church. That gives him authority to build up the church. And let me say this, in Pentecostal circles, there have been a lot of self-identified or self-proclaimed apostles, but they haven't shown the spiritual equipment. They haven't shown the signs and the wonders and the demonstrations of the Spirit that Paul is talking about. And those demonstrations 
should accompany their ministry. Maybe not every time, maybe not every day, every week, or maybe not even every month, but there should be some evidences of what Paul's talking about here, depending upon the gift that those people walk in. So, so we have Paul introducing himself to the Christians at Rome, saying, I am Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, a called apostle, set apart unto the gospel of God. Now, this last part, well, unto the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. The gospel according to his son, having come from the seed of David according to the flesh. This is going to be a, about as far as we can go today, but let's listen to what Paul is saying. Let me read that again. The gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in holy writings about his son, having come from the seed of David, according to flesh. Now, why is Paul saying this? Why is he, why is he first of all, say gospel of God? That's a little bit odd, really, because when we go over to Galatians 1.7, he calls it the gospel of Christ. Listen to Galatians 1.7. He says, not that there's another gospel, but there are some who are confusing you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. And then in Philippians, he says, only live your life in a, in a manner worthy of of the gospel of Christ. So in those two places, he calls it the gospel of Christ, but here in Romans, he says gospel of God. Why does he do that? Well, we see he says gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in holy writings about his son, having come from the seed of David according to the flesh. What he's setting up here is that our gospel stems from the Old Testament, from the promises made to the children of Israel. In fact, let me read this to you. Paul, in his defense in the book of Acts, he says this. He says in Acts 26, 6, And now I stand here on trial on account of my hope in the promise made by God to our ancestors. And ancestors, he's talking about the Jews. What Paul is setting up here, because when, when you get further on in the letter, you see that there are at least some Roman Christians who are ready to throw the Jews out. Who the thinking is, it's like, you know what? Um, you guys are the children of God, but God has moved on from you, and now the gospel has come to the Gentiles. And Paul is going to deal with that in the letter. In the letter, he's going to show that the Gentiles should be very appreciative of the Jews because the gospel comes from the Jews or stems from the Jews. It's not a brand new idea. It's not a plan B. It's not an innovation. It's not, as some have preached, 
where God throws up his hands at the Jews and says, okay, I'm done with you. I'm going to the Gentiles. Paul roots his gospel of Christ in the gospel of the God of Israel that was promised. The promises go all the way back and all the way back to Abraham. Let me read this to you. You know, we just read that God has had promised Paul's ancestors. And who he has in mind, one person is Abraham. Listen to this. This is Genesis 17, 3 through 8. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You shall be the ancestor of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the ancestor or the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and your seed after you throughout their generations, for an everlasting covenant, to be your God to you and to your seed after you. And I will give to you and your seed after you the land where you are now an alien, all the land of Canaan for a perpetual holding, and I will be their God. We're going to see in the book of, in the book of Romans, letter to the Romans, that Paul takes this promise and he says, this is the seed of the gospel of Christ. And He's going to show that both the Jews come from that seed and also the Gentiles come from the seed. And the point being, when he says the gospel of God, that this gospel emanates from the Old Covenant. Let me read to you Isaiah 40 verses 9 through 10. This is so cool. Um, Isaiah writes, Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good tidings. That phrase, good tidings, could be gospel. It's the same Greek word. When you read the Septuagint, it's the same Greek word as where we get gospel from. So you can read it as, get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of the gospel. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of the gospel. Lift it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, Here is your God. See, the Lord God comes with might. His arm rules for him. His reward is with him and his recompense before him. In Isaiah 42, 1, God says, Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. Who's he speaking about? He's speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, I've put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice, not just to Israel. He will bring forth justice to the nations. To the nations. And that's what Paul is setting out in Romans. He's setting out that, that the gospel that was that Israel tried to shut up you know, you go to Jonah and you see that Jonah is a type of Israel. 
And when Israel is instructed to take the gospel and preach it to the Ninevites, to the Gentiles, what, Jonah went the other way and said, I'm not going to do that. And you get to the end of the book, and Jonah says, you know, I knew, I just knew that there wasn't going to be judgment, that you're going to allow them to repent because you're a gracious God, so I went the other way. And Paul deals with that in Romans. He deals with the Jews' rejection of the gospel, of them being a light to all the world, to God's glory going to the ends of the earth. And that's why he says here, the gospel of God. And he establishes that which he promised beforehand through his prophets in holy writings in the Holy Writings about his son. And what he's going to do, it's the coolest thing in the world, really, because nobody could come up with this. I mean, Hollywood, nobody. Nobody could come up with a gospel like this, but he, he's going to take the Romans, Roman Christians back and he's going to show how the Messiah is the root of Jesse that comes up from the Jews, comes up from the people of Israel, how he becomes a curse, and how now the Roman Gentiles are the seed of Abraham, and how God fulfills his plan of redemption. It's such a cool thing. Such a cool, cool thing. So, you know, we're out of time. We got through verse 3, and actually verse 4 is the climax of the pericope. So it might be in the next uh, sermon that we deal with verses 4, 5, and 6. But like I said, there's no way to kind of wrap the epistles up. There's no way to kind of tie them up in a bow because they just go on and on and on. So what we'll do today is we'll end it here and let's do a benediction and we'll see you next time. Now for the benediction. Now may the God of peace who brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, make you complete in every good so that you may do his will. Him working among us, that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen.